Where does naturopathy sit with oncology? We explore that on today's show. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 302. Yes, we have passed the 300 mark. Thank you so much for all of your support all these years. Someone said to me just the other day when I said, oh yeah, there's 300 shows for you to look back into and and um, and see what you might like to listen to. It's impossible to not find something you want to listen to, right? because of all the variety. And they said, 300 shows, like you must be one of the first. (laughs) Made me feel like a bit of a dinosaur. But yes, we have been, I have been podcasting for seven years. Uh, And it truly is such an honor to bring you these incredible people uh, week after week across all low-tox topics, food, body, home, mind, and planet. Uh, And I so appreciate your support and the five-star reviews that you take the time to give and share a little reason why you love the show on Insta or an aha you had. It means the world. Thank you for listening. Now, today, we are, I've invited Carla Ran back. Now, you might remember Carla, we did an in-depth look at long COVID and what the research is telling us in terms of how we can support ourselves through long COVID if we are one of those people experiencing it. Uh, but that's actually not Carla's specialty. Carla has been uh, very focused on oncology support as a naturopath uh, for years. And today in the show, we are actually going to explore that. So we're going to explore how naturopathic principles, uh, Western herbal medicine, uh, mind-body medicine, uh, nutraceuticals and more Uh, can act as an adjunct to mainstream care or to uh, improve the quality of life for people who have either decided to not get the mainstream care or for whom the mainstream care is not working and they want to live their best uh, life possible uh, for the remainder of their lives. And it's such a good show, such great information. And for me, what I found... Uh, most reassuring really is just how common and easy the things are if we prioritize them that make the biggest difference. So Carla is a fully qualified naturopath. She's been in practice since 2001. So that's a while in, uh, by naturopathic standards. And she's a member of the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, Institute of Functional Medicine and Society of Integrative Oncology. So she has done a lot of on study beyond her Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy. She has diplomas in naturopathy, nutrition, herbal medicine and classic homeopathy. 
Uh, she studied for five years at the Australian College of Natural Medicine uh, and graduated in 2001. So her wealth of information now is incredible. There's And she's so well-versed in up-to-the-minute research. If you follow her online, she's always posting new studies that are coming out and her thoughts on those, whether something's promising, whether something's a little bit misleading. Uh, she really is very, very good at separating the wood from the trees. So I hope you enjoy today's show. And please, if you know someone that this might be able to support, uh, I would absolutely love it if you share it. It's such an emotional diagnosis. Culturally, we have also put a lot of weight on cancer and it can be truly terrifying and bewildering to uh, have that uh, diagnosis uh, and talk about prognoses. So knowing that, I think especially knowing that, uh, knowing what I know about naturopathics and how it supports people, uh, it just seems like the perfect set of tools to bring in and explore as to how those people might be able to be supported. So if that's you, I really hope today's show uh, gives you something wonderful to go by and explore. Now, we have a couple of wonderful show sponsors, as we always do. Uh, our major sponsor is Oz Climate. You have till the end of the year to get 10% off their already discounted dehumidifiers and air filters. And I want to do a little focus on air filters. I've done a lot on dehumidifiers and fair enough, especially given we've just had a third potential La Nina event uh, prediction for Australia, which really affects us in terms of flooding and moisture in the air, uh, which no one's very happy about. Uh, so that is why I've talked about dehumidifiers because prevention is always the best strategy and I don't want the heartbreaking situation where so many people found themselves with excess moisture in the air because of day after day after month after month of rain and then not being able to find a dehumidifier because everything was out of stock. So if you don't have one of those yet, please give the guys a call, talk about your floor plan. You can get their phone number on their website, ozclimate.com.au. Um, they're more than happy to step you through what size of dehumidifier you need. Uh, but I want to talk about air filters quickly. The Winix air purifiers are the ones that they use. Uh, they have four or five stage purification, uh, including hospital grade true uh, HEPA filtration. Uh, and they use Winix's unique plasma wave technology. So why I'm mentioning this, it's spring here in Australia, and a lot of people tend to find, as well as in autumn, um, whenever there's a big seasonal change, allergies can kick up. Uh, and you definitely notice a difference when you're running an air purifier in your home if you do uh, suffer from allergies of any kind, whether that's dust mite, whether it's pollens. Uh, whatever's going on, it's a really fantastic appliance. Even if you just keep a little compact one in each of your bedrooms, uh, that can make a huge difference. It's also a great appliance if you have experienced mold in your home, but you cannot move or remediate immediately. It'll ensure that you're cleaning up those roaming mold spores and the mycotoxins that they produce. Uh, which will lessen any effects of the mold while you are working on your long, long game to remove that mold from your home. So 
Whether it's an air purifier for you or a dehumidifier, 10% off with the code LOWTOXLIFE at ozclimate.com.au. And of course, this month's sponsor is BioFirst. And boy, did we get some incredible rave reviews about the Manuka Skin Saver when we had BioFirst uh, as a sponsor first a few months ago this year. Uh, and they've actually, the self-heal salve, which was the free product that you got in the, in the last offer has just won the gold in the 2022 organic beauty award salve category. Uh, and so, uh, it's an excellent SOS skin product, really, really amazing, uh, performance for anything like burns, bites, um, radiotherapy, uh, is also good for, as is the Manuka skin saver, in fact. So, um, this month, you actually have 20% off their entire range for the month of September with the code LOWTOX. And my favorite thing about this is we have a link for Aussie shoppers and a link for US shoppers at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast, and then just click on today's show or one of the last couple uh, given that has been running for this month, and then you'll be able to get uh, that 20% off with the code LOWTOX and uh, and shop uh, more locally to you. So for those of you who haven't heard of BioFirst and you're wondering what kind of a company it is, how long they've been around, they're a natural remedies, Australian family-based business. They're toxic-free, think dirty verified. Uh, everything is Australian made, all from natural ingredients, and they have won a ton of awards. They're doing an incredible job with their products uh, that are affordable uh, I find the Manuka Skin Saver, even though it's, um, gosh, I think it's $50 from memory. Uh, I'm just, uh, yes, I'm pretty sure it is. It lasts like one tiny pump just covers so much. Um, and in fact, as I record this, uh, I'll already be in the UK when this goes live on Monday, but as I record this, we're flying tomorrow, uh, on long haul and I'm going to be using the Manuka Skin Saver as a bit of a healing, uh, slash barrier cream while we're on the flight. I just love it on my face. It's so soothing and beautiful. Uh, and I really think that if you try one product in the range, I'd definitely go the Manuka Skin Saver, but they've got a great lip or cream. As I said, the Self Heal Salve is winning tons of awards uh, and they've got a beautiful uh, in-the-mouth throat spray for um, – uh, coughs, flus, uh, really beautiful natural ingredients uh, to support you through viruses as well. So 20% off, your code is LOWTOX, uh, and I really urge you to check out this beautiful family business because I think their remedies are pretty special. And uh, as you guys have said from trying them in the first time they were sponsors, you think so as well. So enjoy those offers. And now let's head into this very special show with Carla Wren. Thanks again. Hello, Carla. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, last time we were talking long COVID, that's not actually your specialty area of interest as a naturopath. It just you're such a good research trawler and you've probably started having those patients that it led you there. Um, but your uh, core interest is oncology support. Uh, and I'm really interested to hear the role of a naturopath who specializes in this area. And I know a lot of people in the low tox space might have a cancer diagnosis at some point and uh, know that they perhaps want to go with their doctor with the traditional treatment, but 
support themselves through that. I'm sure there are people who decide to say no, not at all to the traditional treatments or I should say mainstream treatments. Uh, And I'm curious to see how you navigate that and uh, because it's such a, the C word, it's big, right? And um, it it feels like, oh, is this gambling my life if I turn my back on that therapy or should I go this way? And I'd imagine it's a really confusing time for people who get that news. Yeah, for sure. And it is a very uh, challenging thing to navigate. One that I kind of, when I stepped into this space and decided I wanted to support oncology patients, um, it really came out of being at home for four years, um, being mum and doing mum life and coming back, I felt like, oh gosh, I've forgotten everything. And I don't know whether it was like breastfeeding, fatigue, adult brain. (laughs) I thought I'll just learn everything about one topic. And the topic I chose was oncology. So, um, and that was really because I saw so much great information about how we could collaborate and um, that information comes out, unfortunately, from other countries uh, than Australia, places like the US and Canada and the UK have some facilities and hospital settings where naturopaths are very much involved in the directing of the care um, with all the great resources and tools that we have available to add to what's known as the standard care. Um, and that doesn't happen so much here. So you're right. There is a, sometimes a situation where people are challenged around where they're going to feel comfortable sitting and what their oncology team um, is going to feel happy with them using. Mm. Um, and that can be a bit of a negotiation sometimes. But um, the, the biggest thing is we never want to make the patient feel uncomfortable about yeah. it. So trying to find the balance and I can fit wherever, um, you know, I'm able to fit in that and get the the uh, best for the patient, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And how, given what you just said about Australia being a little behind the eight ball there with um, collaborative spirit, how have you found that as a naturopath approaching Uh, an oncologist and uh, on behalf of the patient sort of navigating that collaboration, uh, some receptive, some not. Yeah, definitely there is a a variation. And one of the reasons that I kind of was able to move quite quickly through um, building relationships with oncologists is through some patients that I had. Um, I had one patient who's since passed away, uh, but she had a very long journey and lived very well um, with cancer for a long time, much longer than she should have. And she was, I'm going to say like a balls and all person. So she just went into the oncologist and she was like, doing this and through that situation um, the oncologist and I were um, forced to have a relationship and uh, get along and work together and that oncologist is a very busy oncologist who has since referred a lot of patients and is in a network that's um, kind of led to lots of referrals so with those group of oncologists we just have that respect for each other I really do respect what they do I'm certainly not anti-standard care Um, and so um, you know we work together and that works well Uh, but frequently uh, we have oncologists who haven't worked with naturopaths before um, the best situation goes they admit they don't know about the natural therapies and that they're nervous about them um, rather than be you know aggressively against it um, and sometimes very derogatory which puts the patients in a very awkward situation um, so when those situations and conversations need to happen um, I just put my best foot forward around the research and support the patient with whatever they're allowed to do um, and there is a bit of a care team hierarchy so we just try and fit nicely in there um, and you know this 
there's so much research and there's so much safety data um, that I think not collaborating is actually leading to far more uh, problems than the oncologists are aware of. So pushing the collaboration um, statistically is shown to improve outcomes for patients. Um, and I just think if, if we close off those doors and oncologists give patients um, or GPs give patients, not even just patients with cancer, but give them a negative feedback, what tends to happen is they just don't get told. And that's actually far more dangerous than if we have open conversations. So try to, to communicate that in some way. Absolutely. And it comes back down to, I say this so often when people are like, who should I go and see? Look, it's not necessarily about um, cancer that people come to me and we have our practitioner directory with all sorts of wonderful practitioners. But I always say, you know, your best practitioner is going to be your best practitioner and, and auditioning them because you are the client, the patient with the cash um, so you have to be happy and really comfortable with the service and feel like people want to be on your team, not want to boss you around. Totally. And it really is a team thing because there are so many different ways that we can think about helping a patient, but um, it really depends on what that patient needs. And, you know, sometimes I will get oncology patients. I have this story that I tell sometimes a lady came in with breast cancer and I was like great we're going to do xyz and I know that this research shows that this will help and whatever and she's like I'm just going to hold you up from it there and I said okay thinking gosh what have I done she goes you know it's my uh, it's my ex-husband's wedding uh sorry it's my child's wedding in Thailand and my ex-husband's going to be there with his very young fabulous wife and I just want to feel good about myself and so sometimes that's the area we're working in, not even supporting the oncology process. It can be meeting the patient where they're at and what their needs are. And sometimes that's completely different than, than what we see for other patients. Yeah, so true. That's it. Meeting them where they're at and taking them where they want to go. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not necessarily where you would choose if you got to call all the shots. That must be a really interesting thing to balance as a practitioner. I just really feel like it's one of the ways I cope with it because obviously people pass away and sometimes that can be very challenging. But I just think about the impact I had on their life and that impact is controlled by them. Um, and so if they just want a little bit of help with their sleep or their hot flushes, which might be side effects, or they want some guidance around food and how they can eat better um, to help the process, or if they want everything, you know, all the supplements, then, um, you know, it's just about guiding them. And, and I always feel like whatever happens in that journey, I've just done what I can do. Um, and I always think there's some level of um, support or energy transfer that is really helpful for the patient, whatever we did together. Mm, beautiful philosophy. I love that. Um, okay. So at this point in time, <clears throat> what is the naturopathic medicine understanding of cancer? When you guys are taught about it, lecture on it, what is it to you? Yeah, so I think it's um, different for every practitioner. And when you say uh, taught about it, you know, in Australian institutions that we study at, it's not really mentioned as something we would do. Oh, wow. Um, we do external um, external training to learn more about it. And um, that's led in all different ways. Um, but a lot of it comes out of the US and Canada and the UK. So the understanding is really around some of the drivers that we would think of for lots of different um, conditions. So inflammation and um, immune health and cardiometabolic 
metabolic health, blood sugar balance, environmental risks, um, and management of all of those has a lot to do with it, just like with any chronic disease. But I also use something called the hallmarks of cancer and the hallmarks of cancer come from standard medicine there. Um, and just around 14 drivers that are considered to lead to the development of tumors or the micro environment that the tumor grows in. Um, and we can use lots of things from natural medicine perspective to impact those, whether it be things that reduce inflammation, that is one of the hallmarks of cancer, or look at um, epigenetic changes, uh, look at hormonal um, issues and detoxification, they're all covered by the hallmarks. So we really try and think about it just like any other health complaint with drivers and causes and how we can address those uh, personalised for the patient. Got it. Okay. And in terms of as you were learning and, and doing your external studies and starting to um, decide how you wanted to support people, what was some of the research that you were particularly excited about, either in the herbal space or um, nutraceutical? Like, were there things that you were like, oh my gosh, that's huge? Yes, um, I always think about the medicinal mushrooms first in this space. Like there's some very um, impressive research under a herbal formula called PSK, which contains the Tremedes mushroom, uh, turkey tail mushroom. PSK is a formula used very heavily in Japan uh, and it's used as part of their standard oncology now. So it's very well researched. Uh, and there's some you know crazy studies about um, lung cancers and gastric cancers, um, usually clinically trialed on people with stage four cancer, so end of life kind of quite metastasized to show huge improvements in outcomes when people were using PSK or medicinal mushrooms alongside their chemotherapy. So dramatic increases in survival time. And that just blows my mind because I do think about if that was my loved one, um, those extra um, survival time is always quite a clinical measure, um, but the extra days and extra time with your loved ones. And so those mushroom research, but even just research on exercise and increased survival time in breast cancer with um, you know simple exercise changes, um, dietary changes and the impact on that tumor microenvironment. They just always blow me away. There's just so much great research every day. New research came out yesterday about withania. I um, saw that, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, just all of those uh, little pieces of information just give us so many tools to use. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and and so when you, um, when you talk about cancer and tumors, can you give us a bit of a 101 um, biochemistry lesson in terms of existence, growth, metastasis, like just so people really understand. And then when we start to talk about the um, positive effects different things have, it's like, oh, okay, and now I actually know what this is. Yeah, totally. So I think that one of the easiest ways to break it down is, you know, we always have cells that potentially go rogue or change in structure and this is a problem, but our body is, and our, through our immune system, um, particularly through our immune system, is, is great at detecting these cellular changes. And those cells will be destroyed or what's called apoptosed as they move around the body. And we never have to worry about this process. It just happens. Um, so things that could cause these cell changes are things in the environment. So, you know, if we think about smoking or exposure to asbestos or other chemicals, um, also aging or different genetic tendencies um, could have an impact on these cells as good hormones. And, and um, then we start to see those cell changes not being picked up in some people's bodies. And the reason for these is hugely varied and very much depends on the cancer type. Uh, but if a cell is able to change and grow and it finds somewhere lovely to, to, to grow in, um, then we think of it a bit like a vegetable garden. You know, if you have a tumor micro 
environment that's going to allow that cell to replicate and grow and flourish to, to cause a bulked tumour, um, then we start to have a problem. But for a tumour microenvironment to be there, we have to have some things in our body that have allowed um, that to happen. So high inflammatory levels, increased glucose. Um, there are a whole lot of drivers um, on a cellular level, um, the insulin growth factor being one of them that impact that tumor microenvironment. So the healthier someone is and the more they avoid those chemical triggers or other triggers that I mentioned, the less likely they are going to be to have a place where a, a cell that wasn't picked up and destroyed can, can grow and replicate and they hopefully are picking up and destroying any incorrectly formed cells. So that tumor micro environment tells us a lot about um, the body's health and what we can also do to address a growing tumor now some cancers are different and you know genetics has a huge part to play in those um, there is some cancers have different drivers so I'm very interested in the gut microbiome and the impact that has on colorectal cancer the research is just exploding in that space but essentially think of um, cells gone wrong body not detecting that and an environment that allows the cell to grow and replicate when it shouldn't be able to because of choices um, and, and, and genetics that the patient might have um, within their system that allows that to grow and replicate. Mm. And I think biotoxins is one that is um, vastly under-researched as well. I know I had some um, things that I needed biopsying in my breasts uh, when I was in the thick of mold illness um, that simply shrank and disappeared after leaving that environment. Um, and they weren't sinister, luckily, but they were growth. Yes. And, and if you imagine that tumor microenvironment and inflammation is literally impacting that um, mm. environment, then it, the, it's like seducing it. You know, it's yeah. saying this, this incorrect thing that's problematic, like grow and flourish, literally mm. like a veggie garden doing a great job. And so when you resolve those immune challenges and inflammation, um, which we're set up to do, you know, that that's not necessarily the way standard oncology works. And so when we're set up to do those things, help people with their blood sugar balance, remove the toxins, um, it's amazing how many times people haven't been asked about their toxic exposure when we talk to them. Uh, in the clinical setting, you know, the oncologist will have said, this is your diagnosis and this is what we're going to do. But very often that personalised approach of how this happened and where you grew up and what work you did and what house you live in isn't discussed. No, it's not. I'm I'm super encouraged because in the low tox community, people are always talking in our various chat groups um, that a few people who've had cancer diagnoses, one of the first things the oncologist says now, it seems in um, many practices is stop using all the fragrance products. Um, you know, if you can switch to a fragrance free deodorant, great. Like they're, they're really, it feels like the understanding around phthalates uh, is definitely there now, which oh, is definitely. that's really exciting. Yeah, and I was doing some research recently looking at the environmental risks and there's some very clear papers being released, uh, maybe a little bit generalised, but still um, looking at environmental exposures and the increased risks in some countries um, and then trying to drill down on some of the specific um, issues and phthalates would definitely be recommended um, to avoid. But, you know, it is... It grows out from there and I think all of the glycophosphates and, and you know, I, pollution in general um, is starting to be discussed a whole lot more um, and I think it's just finding the practitioners that are able to give some education around that without making patients feel fearful. It's a big issue I find particularly in the breast cancer space. Um, they're worried about what they're eating. They're worried about what they're putting on their body. They're worried about um, where they're 
living and you know it's a it's a process you know from your experience you don't have to change overnight and to be fearful or stressed we know increases the risk of cancer progression as well oh, so education 100%. gently is something I try and do yeah for sure and that was something I realized really early on I remember the very first intake of Golotox um our environmental toxin reduction program um I, I was actually called 30 days to your low tox life. And I'm ushering this first group of like 300 women through because it's always women. We always have an, the odd bloke and I, I always appreciate them being there, but generally chicks and generally middle-aged or late twenties. Um, and the stress, people thought they had to achieve everything by the end of the 30 days. I was like, no, 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 no. This is all wrong. <laughs> yeah. no. 30 days to get all the information, decades to actually put it all into place and feel really empowered along the way instead of terrified that you haven't done it fast enough or well enough. Exactly. And we mm. talk about that a lot by trying to chunk it all down. And, you know, even like the clean 15, dirty dozen idea is sometimes where I'll just start, like we've got to change these foods now or we've got to change these body products now or we've got to stop using plastics altogether. And and sometimes that's all that people can take in in the beginning, but any change we celebrate um, because it, it all contributes and, and, it, and it all helps so yeah that's fantastic yeah days is a lot to do it all but yeah, <laughs> it's a lot um, that was definitely yeah, yeah definitely not a good course name and changed very swiftly um okay so we were actually just talking then about the, some of the things that are go-tos to remove as soon as you get that diagnosis but I'd love to spend a bit of time in the prevention space um, you mentioned immune health and our immune systems come to the rescue. A lot of people are conscious and hello, just coming out of a massive flu myself, um, are conscious that our immune systems have had a big hit. We talked about this with long COVID last show and worried, of course, we shouldn't be worried because that adds to the stress, but we're worried our immune systems aren't quite what they should be for, um, for all the onslaughts of lurgies we've had this year coming back into normal life. Can you help us, you know, if we think of T cells and immunoglobulin levels, like how can we start to put some, some oomph back into our immune systems after all these hits we've taken this year? Yeah, and I think it's a really good question. There is actually some papers to suggest that um, not only did we lose a whole lot of um, diagnosis of cancers throughout the lockdown period, so around, oh, I forget the stats, like thirty to 40,000 people didn't turn up to get diagnosed. So they're still out there and you do see a spike but also all the things that we went through, the infections, and like you said, other infections are having an impact on the increased risk of, de of developing some cancers. Now, I'm going to talk about that very carefully because it's only early research, but it looks like there's some connection. So I don't want people to be more worried. But like you said, our immune systems have taken a hit. So um, definitely we want all of those white cell counts to be as robust as possible. And um, using things like my favourite is always going to be the medicinal mushrooms. Like I could talk about them all day, every day, but they're um, improvement on the natural killer cells. Um, and then typical things around the nutrients. So, you know, vitamin D, C, zinc, E, A, all the ones that we love for our immune system are still just as important in oncology prevention. Um, and I would perhaps add in some more 
anti-inflammatory and antioxidant things. Um, so, you know, whether it be, um, you know, using anti antioxidants or anti-inflammatory foods um, or whether it be going to more towards a supplement, um, you know, things like omega-3 comes to mind, nice clean omega-3, um, and then the bioflavonoids in those vitamin Cs, you know, all of those have a huge impact uh, on the immune system uh, and are able to really restore us in a way that I think will have a positive impact. Um, the probiotics too would be the other thing, just uh, especially when we think about people who have a risk or known family history of some of the colorectal cancers or other gastric cancers. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the best probiotic strains in the research for um, that work? Yeah, I feel like it's still growing in knowledge specifically for cancer, but I would say the lactobacillus uh, rhamnosus LGG would be my favourite for immune health uh, in general and also probably in the oncology space, but information is growing. And I think I would say, um, you know, getting stool testing done and microbiome testing if you've got gut health issues or a family history of oncology problems has been shown in some of the papers to allow us to pick up species that might be predictive of a colorectal cancer or um, detrimental in improved outcomes in colorectal cancer. So growing space, but probiotic would be um, another one for your immune. Any immune promoted probiotic would be a good one. Yeah, brilliant. And then in terms of metabolic health, you've mentioned blood sugar a couple of times. So obviously this is a, a big risk factor. Um, there's a real trend right now uh, in the wellness space that I'm seeing to really ramp up the muscle mass. Mm. Mm. Uh, in uh, and I'm I'm curious to see whether that stacks up in the research as being one of the absolute go tos for metabolic um, health and cancer prevention. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I agree. And I wonder if ramping up that muscle health is causing more inflammation in the process that could be detrimental as well. I think, and the other side of, um, you know, protein consumption and overconsumption is also that acidosis. So, um, an acid system is also considered to be growth promoting. So like anything, I think it comes down to balance. And so with my patients, when I'm assessing their metabolic health, I use the marker HBA when see and I really want to see their glucose averages kind of um, high fours low fives um, and if they're not sitting in those kind of spaces then increasing protein and healthy fat um, minimizing the unhealthy or processed carbohydrates would be the way that I would go um, but as far as prevention I think it'll be interesting to see just as more and more dietary research comes out it's still all, all about the Mediterranean diet um, but that really comes down to the fact it's been researched for a whole lot longer than fasting or keto um, or other dietary choices so I think in time it will evolve and we'll learn more specifics about different cancers and and which ones are better for plant-based and which ones are better for keto and yeah. Yeah. So you think there'll be situations where we see um, plant-based being better for some and keto being better for others, like brain cancer, yeah, for example? You can, yes, that's right. You can already see that in the research and I do wow. train practitioners or work with my patients. There is, um, I, I call it like preliminary information that we take into consideration. So certainly on colorectal cancer, we would be looking at more of a plant-based diet, certainly taking um, the red meat out that's um, in the diet, especially if it's excessively consumed. Um, the way that they cook their meat is also really important 
important in um, colorectal cancer. So moving towards a really healthy plant-based diet um, is generally considered more effective for colorectal cancer at the moment. Uh, and then um, your brain cancer, um, pretty much keto. Although I have patients who do respond well not doing the ketogenic diet, but the research on ketogenic diet, uh, particularly for GBM and some of the other brain cancers, is, is really strong. Um, and then different treatments also warrant different uh, different choices. So fasting is fantastic with a lot of chemotherapies, but generally in radiotherapy, we would be thinking more about a Mediterranean diet or a ketogenic diet, not fasting. So you know, there's a lot to pick up between the patient's metabolic function and their um, traditional family dietary choices, uh, and then their cancer type and their treatment type. You've got to find a diet that's not stressful somewhere in there. So yeah. small changes are often the best. Yeah, well, key is them not being stressed out trying to implement mm-hmm. it as well. Exactly. And imagine losing all joy in food as well. That would be another mental health yeah. consideration. Totally like that orthorexia fear of food is massive, especially amongst the breast cancer community. And so really um, I start with A, assessing where they're at to see if they do need to make a change by looking at the HVA1C and then starting with just maybe one meal. Like how can we up-level your breakfast and clean clean out some of the products in your pantry that might not be doing all the cooking techniques or the products that you're using that might not be improving your health and then slowly work through rather than just trying to change everything because I think it does make a lot of fear. And also I've seen a lot of people who don't want to go out. You know, socialising becomes really problematic. You know, a lot of cancers we would be asking people to cut out or dramatically reduce alcohol um, and then make significant changes to their food and before they know it, going out and socialising with their friends becomes very stressful and daunting and I don't really want to have that as an issue for my patients. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned cooking method. Is Are you alluding to uh, moving away from um, high heat frying? Yeah. So anything that's going to cause those ages, that blackening um, that, you know, some people might enjoy uh, on steaks and things like that. It's been known as a carcinogen um, for a long time and in colorectal cancer, it's a contributing uh, issue that we need to consider. So um, it pretty much if it's black, we shouldn't be eating it uh, in colorectal cancer and probably across other cancers as well. So talking more about slow cooking, I think from a nutritional perspective, maintaining the nutrients within your food, slow cooking is one of the things I encourage for my patients also because it means that they can prepare in advance Um, and yeah just being cautious about the way they cook foods or the implements they're using to cook foods um, so that they don't end up with you know extra chemicals added yeah ditch Um, the plastic utensils people please yeah yeah exactly and um, these can be big investments for people but really worthwhile Um, so yeah there's lots to lots to teach in this space um, to patients when they're in this situation and and the environment is, you know, one of those big drivers that needs to be considered for many people. Mm. Um, One cancer that you didn't mention, which is obviously one of the most common, is breast cancer there with diets. Is there any uh, information that suggests a particular way of eating for breast cancer? Yeah, so my first aim is to really drive down that blood glucose level. It's a it's a cancer that in multiple ways is affected by metabolic health, so much so that sometimes um, metformin, the diabetic drug, will be used as a co-prescription alongside chemotherapy to get blood glucose down. I would always try and do that with food rather than using another pharmaceutical. Um, so uh, probably more uh, around um, avoiding all of the things that are estrogenic uh, in foods uh, and, uh, sorry, not all the things 
that are estrogenic. Some phytoestrogens is lovely and protective, but um, using plastics and BPAs and soft plastics and glad wraps and, you know, like, oh, you, you know where they all are, your listeners know where they are. So watching all of those uh, and then really being mindful about blood glucose level and also getting enough fiber to help with the hormonal component. So um, blood glucose metabolism and the effect on hormones is big in breast cancer for the majority of breast cancer patients, especially if it's a hormonally driven cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it would kind of then make sense to to stick to really good quality meat, veg, slow cooked, um, lots of vibrant smoothies and exactly. um, not much sugar. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And um, the, the, the variety is so important. The estrobolome, that understanding of how the um, microbiome has an impact on uh, elimination and estrogen um a breakdown um, is growing mm-hmm. and so fiber I think is so easy to avoid especially if people are moving into a more of a keto uh, diet so education around the benefits of fiber and getting a diversity among the nutrients that you're getting from all the different fruits and vegetables like eat the rainbow is one of the things I spent a lot of yeah. time telling people um, just look at your you look at your, your basket with all your groceries in and like is it colorful if not go back anymore you know and um, that helps in numerous ways including the microbiome in breast cancer. Yeah. And I'd imagine that, I mean, the number one thing that no one needs to be confused about eliminating is the ultra processed food. Yeah, totally. And that can be a big job for someone. Like I still frequently get, I would say we're probably, um, the community that I work in is probably um, relatively highly educated around food, uh, but there's still, um, you know, there's still the wheat bigs for breakfast and um, wow, you know, okay. yeah, like things that you perhaps think, Oh, I thought, you know, kind of like moved on from that. Mm. Um, but no, we still see heaps of that. So Yeah, no, you moved on. Yeah. <laughs> heaps of people are still there. I feel like yeah. general understanding. It's always hard though, because it's, you know, if, if you spend time with people that are making their own granola and um or, you know, whatever, you, you kind of think that's normal. But yeah, there's still there's still people drinking Coke, you know. So um then, you know, working through that can be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think do you find that um, I always say this when people have to go on elimination diets or um, therapeutically change their diet for medical reasons, going in with a discovery, not deprivation mindset, like what could I find out that I love instead of I can't have all my favourite things anymore? Yeah, it's so it's key. issue. And so can you imagine it's like the worst day of your life and maybe the worst day of your partner's life as well when you're told that you have a diagnosis, particularly if it's a pro, you know quite aggressive one, um, and then now you're coming to my office and I'm telling you you can't eat all your favourite things. And the carer is, is huge in this issue. There's so much research around the health of the carer happening in Australia, which is fantastic, and naturopath Rebecca Warren is doing lots of research. And what we find is those dietary changes often fall on that carer. So, you know, they have fear around their safety in, in their family situation, fear about the health of their um, loved one now and long term and now they also need to become a chef and learn how to completely get rid of all the toxins in their life and it's a lot on that person so yeah gently gently it's tricky yeah very tricky um but doable yeah a hundred percent um and, and pieces tackle it one piece at a time and exactly i love that idea about what can i learn and discover and people do they love their new food they just got to mm. get, get their head around it sometimes yeah, absolutely. Change is terrifying until you start making the changes. That's what I always say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to know also about the mind, body, spiritual piece in cancer. There are so many great books, um, even great books about remissions. 
uh, when people really focus on this area. Um, what have you seen in practice and what do you lead your patients to explore and discover for themselves in terms of really de- filling up their cup in that in that mind spiritual practice? Yes. So I think there's phenomenal research on this. One of my favourite integrative oncologists from the US, her name is Dr. Lise Ashler. She's an um, oncologist and naturopath. And she talks about um, the moods and uh, overall survival and definitely being optimistic um, is ideal. Pessimism has led to the least survival chance. So we want to get away from all negativity and work towards positive thoughts, research around social connection, meditation, mindfulness, um, personal development, and also strong improvements, even just journaling changes outcomes um, dramatically. So uh, really trying to bring in lots of these skills for patients and educate them in this space. I would have to say that patients who go in with a really positive mindset um, have better outcomes. You just see it even in my patient group, if we did a little study on them, those that are overwhelmed are are unhappy people or unable to make the changes that they need to have um, or, or make, learn the lessons they need to make generally have a worse outcome. So it's something we need to work on quite a bit for some people. Uh, And look, the the research just shows do what you love. So we talk a lot about what's your purpose, um, what's your legacy, like what would you like to be remembered for and are you doing those things? And sadly, many people, especially after the last couple of years, have lost all of the things that they love to do. You know, maybe their favourite hobby didn't keep going or they just got sidetracked doing other things and haven't gone back to whatever it was that they love. So we're really trying to bring in those things that fill people's cup um, and things that they wanted to do longer term and start doing them now, don't put them off because that um, definitely shows the changes in how they feel um, and their perception of all the side effects is worse if they're not feeling happy. So trying to bring all of those things back. Like now is the time and cancer, I think, is one of those things that gets people back on track more than just about any disease, I think. Yeah, it's it's an ultimatum, isn't it, often for people that word, that word just conjures the right, everything needs to change and I'm not going to question it. Mm, Wow. Okay. So um, I'm curious to know, does any particular type of cancer gravitate towards your clinic? Like, do you find that you end up with really similar cases and patients or it's a bit of everything? Yes, because of that patient that um, I spent a lot of time working with, she had breast cancer. And so um, certainly down our way and my local referrals in clinic are a lot of breast cancer patients. You know, obviously it's a very common uh, cancer in Australia and um, there is a lot of research and support and networks, which means people talk more and they uh, get to learn about the benefits of complementary medicine and want to access some support around it. So I think there's lots of reasons why, but yeah, breast cancer are very, very common. Um, and then I would have to say, I also tend to see a lot of the uh, blood cancers due to some referrals I get and then colorectal and esophageal cancer. Um, But look, it varies hugely and there seems to be trends and waves but overall breast cancer um, would be the, the, the most common uh, cancer I see. And I think that fits into a bit like what you were saying about people coming and looking for support, making environmental changes um, through your programs. There's like a bit of a niche of patients that will access our care and breast cancer patients often fit in that niche. Mm, okay, cool. Um, so let's get down to the nitty gritty of how you support them. So through the four, four types of stages, obviously, and um, I'm, I'm curious to see, like, maybe we just focus on breast cancer to make that uh, an easier thing to just say, okay, so this is what that looks like. Can you step us through some of the key aspects of care? 
Yeah, exactly. So I guess we meet the patient where they're at. So generally the patient will come to me um, just diagnosed um, or having been through their treatment already. Um, and that treatment may or may not have been successful. So there are the people that are going on to survivorship and now they're trying to live their healthy, well life. And then, then there are people that are looking for alternatives because they haven't got the, the success they want um, during their treatment. So we really see like four key groups coming in that way. But the four key ways I try and help those people is really around and um, what we know we can do to minimise any side effects of the treatment they're on. And I really love doing that because those side effects are sometimes what affects the patient's quality of life more than anything else. Um, so women who are on um, some of the hormonal endocrine therapies uh, will have terrible hot flushes and that can be debilitating. You know, they might not feel comfortable at work or it might be causing them to have disrupted sleep. So, you know, that's just one area that we try and work in with the side effects. And next is thinking about the chemo preventatives. And we have to be really careful around the language that we use because in Australia we don't talk about anti-cancers um, as far as um, nutrients or herbs but there are herbs that we call chemo preventative and these are ones that really target those hallmarks so they've been shown in clinical trials to improve cancer outcomes whether it be all cancers or a specific cancer we think about using those if they're appropriate um, and then we think about them um, other comorbidities of the patient so if a patient comes with let's just say diabetes or insulin resistance or they've had a biotoxin illness and they've got inflammatory issues we need to think about those because they definitely tap into each other it's not one is separate to the other so we think about their whole health and then we also think about all the modifiable lifestyle factors so like you said about um uh, you know meditation and purposeful um things that they're doing with their life and their social connection and their movement and their diet and their um environmental changes they might need to make and so we address that as well so i try and talk them through those four stages and, and have that relevant to where they are because someone in survivorship is ready to like thrive and make all the changes and someone who's just diagnosed is just in a whirlwind and doesn't know what to do so we have to vary things but we work through those steps um, so a typical patient who comes in about to have treatment, we will be really careful around what we would do with their treatment and make sure we don't cause any interactions and that the oncologist is on board and then really work across all of those levels to try and move them forward. And we might do the same if someone's in that survivorship stage. Mm -hmm. And so let's now look at those two different areas in terms of treatment and mitigating side effects. What are some of the best herbs and uh, nutrients to focus on. Yeah, so they literally marry up to um, the different chemotherapeutic agents or the different therapies like a radiotherapy. So this is where my mind is just blown. This research is done. It's not like I have to do it or figure it out. You know, there are charts that say if a patient is taking, um, oh, let's just say, you know, I don't know, like there's a million examples. If, if a patient um, is taking tamoxifen as an example and they're getting hot flushes or vaginal dryness, these are the things to use from the clinical trials. Or if they're having cyclophosphamide, there's also which is a common breast cancer first-line treatment. Um, there's also things we clearly shouldn't do when that research has been done. Um, turmeric is the most common interaction we see. People know that curcumin or turmeric is wonderful. Um, in oncology, it has lots of research. It targets at least 14 of the drivers or hallmarks of cancer in a phenomenal way, um, but it also stops cyclophosphamide working. So um, if you're listening and that's just shocked you, you know, reach out and let's talk about that because so many people will be taking it. Um, and think, so oh, it's an anti-inflammatory I should be on this 
Yeah. yeah, it just um, has a competitive uh, issue with absorption through the um, liver in one of the pathways. And so we can't use it at that time. And so um, we follow these really clear guidelines around what we can use to mitigate the side effects. Um, you know, in radiotherapy, um, we use a green tea spritz, which sounds crazy. We make a decoction of organic green tea and spritz it on to um, the radiotherapy site after the treatment. And it has a huge statistical significance significance um, in reduction of radiation dermatitis and you know that's like a cheap and easy thing that people can do at home um, that's been clinically trialed you know um, mouth ulcers there's some great studies on honey and instant coffee which is really random we try not to use that one but that study's been done so um, you know herbs and nutrients are really effective at mitigating side effects I would say in just about every um, side effect we see except perhaps some of the new immunotherapies which have very very different and unusual side effects and I think the research hasn't been finished yet on the type of ways we can support those side effects in the same way as some of the older more commonly used or longer term used chemotherapies and radiotherapy. Mm. I'm so glad turmeric came up and the liver pathways years ago um, when I first started experiencing inflammation uh, uh, symptoms before years before knowing I was living in mold and and had that um, ability to then move through healing um, my practitioner, naturopath, her husband was a biochemist, a biomedical scientist, and he would do the C- the CYP450 group of tests. And so you get your list of things that are really just not great for you. And um, I think I have the, I can't even remember what it is, the um, 2D9. It's just not there. And so things like turmeric, uh, goji berries. There were a few things and then a few medications that pass through that pathway. I don't metabolize them. Um, I don't have the function to do so. And they're just not a great food for me. And it was the first time that I had ever had a chance to wrap my head around just how bio-individual the science now is at the forefront, but also to get really sad about how long it takes to bring it um, to the forefront mainstream wise in terms of, okay, let's get you tested here so we can see which drugs are going to pass through your liver in which ways and which ones aren't going to be good for you. Um, it and, kind and that of blows my that. mind that we don't oh, use totally. that for everybody yet. Yeah, and it extends on to that understanding about hormonal pathways um, and how they will move through similar pathways and the impact of methylation and all of those things on our ability to to detoxify our hormones. And sadly, there is a percentage of women that I will do Dutch testing or some other testing on around their hormone levels, and we'll find that they've probably just always had issues with um, hormonal elimination and that things that they've um, been ingesting or things in their environment haven't helped that and um, I would never say that that caused their cancer it's certainly not as straightforward as that but it probably hasn't helped them to have um, these uh, genetic tendencies or epigenetic pathways that have meant that they've had struggles uh, with the hormones and and yes using things like turmeric and um, some of the other you know herbs and nutrients that target those pathways or require those pathways for um, processing and effectiveness and methylation and impact on um, the drugs can be tricky to to navigate. Mm, absolutely. And so you mentioned the dust, Dutch test there. Are you at a place where when you identify those women and those results in their um, hormone testing, and for those who don't know the Dutch test, please Google Low Tox Life Dr. Carrie Jones and the um, 
the first show we did together really goes deep into it. It's a great test. Um, I'm curious to see, though, in clinic, if you're able to then treat and work on those pathways that get clogged up and aren't detoxifying properly, do you feel already that you can see a better outcome for those patients when they have their therapy of choice and work with you? Yeah, I think the challenging thing is not enough research is done to compare or know where they would have been if they hadn't. Like it's always easy in hindsight to go, well, that could have been bad if we didn't do that. But it's sometimes hard to know at the time. But but I definitely think um, even from a side effect perspective, when we do that work, patients generally tolerate everything better. And they also feel better. Like ultimately in cancer, it's very much a, about the, the war on it. We want it to be gone. We want it to eliminate it. We want to kill it. Like we use all these funny words to describe tumours. Um, but we ultimately want people to feel well, whatever their status is. And, you know, people who haven't been able to achieve the remission that they want can still feel really well and live long, healthy lives. So I find that patients, when we do the Dutch test and we sort out hormonal problems, sometimes it's like a breakthrough for them in their overall health. And they just feel so much better anyway, that I think that has a huge impact on their outcomes, whether or not it's because of the estrogen effect or whether it's just because that has been something that's driven their health problems for so long anyway. Yeah. Wow. That makes sense. Um, you've mentioned patients who, for whom the mainstream treatments don't work. So they've tried all their standard care. It hasn't gotten them very far. And now I, I forgot the term that you use for this group of patients. Um, we, well, I would just say that they're, um, well, they're like the non-responders. They're, they're literally those patient groups um, can sometimes end up with not many more options. So we um, then start to think about what chemo preventative herbs and nutrients we can use for those patients to, um, you know, encourage their body to do what it's meant to do. Um, and, and their immune system and inflammation, all those become even more important. And it can sometimes be one of the most pleasurable groups of patients to work with, because if you've run out of options uh, in standard medicine, um, then, you know, it really gives me a chance to do all of the things we would like to do when someone's on treatment, but sometimes we can't do because of the interactions or the other risks or the things that they're going through with their standard treatment. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a challenging time for people. Um, but it's also um, always lots of options. And I say to people, our toolbox that we have to use is as big as uh, the consult room that I'm in. And sometimes it's just hard to choose what to use. And that's a great time when we can really use a lot of great things. Yeah, brilliant. And and so we're at that point where we're going to manage and try and treat and up the natural um, support because the standard care hasn't worked. Um, what have been, can you share a couple of case studies that have really blown you away when you've been able to go carte blanche and, um, and nuts on everything that you'd like to try where you sometimes can't when you're partnered with standard care? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a number and sometimes there'll be the patient group too who will choose not to have um, the standard treatment as well for a whole lot of reasons. And so we sometimes see the same kind of things happening within them. There's a, um, a test called the RGCC, which gives us some ideas around some of the things that might be specifically effective for that patient that we might then be able to adopt. Um, some of those are more interesting supplements that, that will come from overseas, not always available in Australia. I But I really just drill down to um, 
what's happening in their processes in their body? What is their immune system doing? What's their inflammation doing? What's their detoxification doing? What is their environment like? What are they eating? Um, what do their genetics tell us? And, and doing epigenetic testings. I, I use Fit Genes as a program that I love. Um, and, you know, if we look at their, their system and find that they're really inflammatory and they're not great at resolving inflammation, um, I find we can get really big improvements in patients' um, overall health and well-being. And certainly... Um, sometimes it's tricky in these stages to get the testing that they need. So if you've gone through the treatment and things haven't worked, there's a bit of a tendency for patients to then be um, left to live how they are. And I would like to know still what we're, we're achieving with the um, testing that they might be doing. So if we're not getting the testing, we really have to rely on how does the patient feel. Oh, wow. So you're saying once the standard care hasn't worked and they're effectively released, from um, the oncology care, um, it's then hard to get tested again? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, sometimes, but I don't want that to come across derogatory towards No, no, and I'm certainly um, not trying to lead yeah, you there. No, it's it, more like, like yeah, that it's like, now a challenge. Yeah, so cancer markers are something that are measured for people and they're not responsive for everyone, but sometimes seeing that number go up and up and up and up and up isn't really helpful to a person um, mm. once they're at the stage when they may not be using standard care anymore. Got it. I the see the what you're tests seem to be used to help to choose or direct the standard care. Mm. But if the standard care isn't working anymore, watching and monitoring and running these tests that potentially have risks around them themselves sometimes isn't done anymore. So um, we have to really decide, okay, how are we knowing that the therapies I'm giving are improving? Are we still measuring cancer markers? Are they still having scanning done? Are we able to um, palpate tumours and know that the patient can feel a change in those? Or are we just looking for symptomatic improvement? Uh, and there's also a real shift for patients sometimes where they get to the end of that treatment and they felt like they've undergone a lot of sometimes invasive interventions and now they just want to let it be. And I spoke to a beautiful patient this week who has been through melanoma and um, has a young family and, and was stage four and was able to really um, use all the, the standard cares that were available as well as complementary care to get her to a really good point. But we're having this conversation about changes she can see happening in some of the melanomas on her body and she has decided that that's it. I'm not going to have any more treatment. I want to do what I can to support myself, but I've done that. And if it didn't work, now I want to live my life to be as healthy as possible. And sometimes you see the most miraculous changes in that stage. And it's not even about the cure or that, um, all that like war on cancer stuff. It's just miraculous changes in the way people are living their lives. Um, and, and some of the cases that I've loved working with the most are people who've chosen to live their life the way they want um, and lived with cancer as a chronic disease rather than something that needs to be eradicated from their body at all costs. How interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so different to the language that's used, as you've said, right? The war on and eliminate and I beat it and victory. Um, I know speaking to um, past show guests who've had cancer and people in the low tox community that a lot of people don't find that that riled up spirit actually supports them at all. No, no. And I think it's a big part of 
perhaps how we handle this in the West, it's very, Australia phenomenally like rushes everything. Like you get the diagnosis and then you've got to rush to get this appointment and get this test. And I, I think it's with the best intentions it's to get, it's to get action to resolve this as fast as possible. Um, but I think it sometimes doesn't serve people well in other countries. They will very much have an idea about um, slow and paced and here are your options and consider your options. And I've even heard the saying like get your ducks in a row mentioned. And it doesn't just mean like prepare your will it means like how who's gonna look after your dog if you have to go off to have treatment who's walking your dog where is your food coming from how can you make changes to what you're eating um time to get all the information you want and make a constructive um personalized decision and i think the rush that we see sometimes doesn't allow for that um and and can increase the fear for patients i think oh absolutely i could imagine and just, yeah, the the stress that would come with, oh, I've got to do this today because otherwise it's growing and that's mm, going to mm. kill me, um, yes. would probably be where most people's heads go because of the cultural mm. approach. Yes. And I think the same can be said for the treatment and, the, and there's a general lack of understanding. You know, once someone gets diagnosed with cancer, there is a lot of fear, but there's a lot of things that people deal with normally that are a cell change that we have a completely different perspective about. Even the understanding around pap smears and the cellular changes that are picked up in pap smears doesn't cause the same level of fatigue as perhaps having a mammogram and having some cell changes does. And so communication and understanding around what exactly you're being told is very important. And I find if people are in fight or flight or in panic, um, they are making rash decisions. And I see a lot of patients who will say, oh, no, I'm not having chemotherapy. And I'll say, well, you know, what were you offered and, and why aren't you having it? And the picture in their mind is the movie or a loved one that they've seen really struggle. They've lost their hair. They've been very, very sick. They've lost weight. They've become the sick person. And, in fact, um, as a bit of an advocate for one of some of the treatments, a lot of, no, I would say the majority of treatments nowadays don't look like that. But if you have your mind set with that, I think it can be a very, very fearful place to rush through um, and spending time really understanding what you've been offered and talking to some of the beautiful breast cancer nurses and um, general general oncology nurses and getting support from the care team around people can make it much easier for them to, to go through that process without feeling stressed and overwhelmed. Mm. Oh, thanks, Carla. This has been such a great uh, conversation to get a better understanding of how naturopathy fits in with oncology. And it's so heartwarming to know there are great doctors out there ready to collaborate um, and support the best patient outcomes possible. I have one last question for you, and it feels like it's going to be a bit of a recap on some of the main themes. Um, back to the preventative space, it feels like what we want to do is create the kind of environment that functions effectively at getting rid of those rogue cells. So a discouraging of um, growths, basically. Uh, if you had to really hone in on the major lifestyle choices that we should be considering uh, focusing on from today, what 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 rises to the top for you? 
I feel like I've been be unpopular saying this. Maybe it's okay with your audience, but I feel like <laughs> in the future we will be looking back at the uh, the drinking culture in Australia in a very different way. Mm. I think uh, that you know smoking was tackled and no one really does it anymore. Certainly not in the health space, but alcohol is still uh, very much ingrained as something that is okay and not having a big impact on your health. And in the breast cancer stats, it is phenomenal the effect it's having um, both on our development of cancers, but also progression of cancers um, and I, I think generally the, the type of things you're educating your organize your audience around um, you know high quality foods avoiding processing um, how, helping them balance or reduce inflammation support their immune system support metabolic function they're all the same things what you do for your endometriosis or to boost your immune system or to help with your arthritic pain or your mold illness it's the same thing it's like your well-being diets and the, all of those things are the same thing it's just I think there are probably some key issues um, that we're seeing more and more of uh, that need to be addressed and I do have concerns about alcohol and don't get me wrong uh, my friends listening to this will know I do still drink but um, it's certainly something to be mindful of um, especially if it's something that that hasn't been something you've considered before. Yeah it's a drinking is a really interesting one and I agree with you our culture is very much you are weird if you're not having the drink. Like, what's wrong? Are you detoxing? Are you pregnant? Like, there has to be some sort of medical reason that someone's not drinking. And, um, and I'm in through the mold illness and the histamine going through the roof. All of a sudden, couldn't drink wine and champagne. To this day, I mean, I'll have the odd sip of red wine, like, you know, if dad's really opened something gorgeous at a family lunch, I'll have a a quarter of a glass, but it's just not something I'm interested in anymore. And, um, and, uh, and I'd much rather have like one really great glass of something a handful of times a year, really expensive and delicious and and just not be a regular drinker. And it's, I'm actually quite, um, amazed by how people feel and I almost feel like you know addicts need a friend like you need the buddy who's also doing the thing so no one's questioning the thing being bad and I think that's an unspoken aspect of alcohol in this country if you're not drinking you're somehow shaming the other person and that's absolutely not the case and yet I think that's how it comes across yeah. And I think coping with stress too, it's become an acceptable uh, recreational drug to cope with stress. And so um, drinking while preparing the dinner or after work, all of those things um are okay once in a while but I think like you said the beautiful celebrations where you have a lovely something with loved ones um, or you're on holidays and it's part of the experience and it's not overdone is different to the everyday uh, you know drinking for the hell of it because you don't know better or because it's a bad habit you've gotten into and I think social groups definitely have a, a big impact on that and it's something that I think you know I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately but 10 20 years from now we might look back and think wow we, we did a lot of the wrong thing then and it didn't help in in cancers particularly I would say breast and colorectal cancers um, prostate cancer to a certain extent as well and I think we'll learn that more and more over time well, thank you so much. Uh, I learnt loads and I know everybody listening will have as well. Uh, and we've got all the details of your practice if people want to work with you and your team uh, in the show notes. 
Um, thanks so much for joining me once again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Alex. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram, at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram, uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.